The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, I've got 6.30. Good to see all of you here tonight, the studies. We continue our study in Pilgrim's Progress, so let's go ahead and pray and we'll, we'll dig in. Lord, thank you for uh, the, just the incredible blessings you lavish on us in the Christian life. We thank you for the way that you build us up and strengthen us and set us on pilgrimage day after day. I thank you for the role of brothers and sisters in our lives who can help us in our pilgrimage to heaven. I thank you for uh, the fact that even some brothers and sisters have gone on to be with the Lord even centuries ago, but they left a legacy for us to learn from, and our brother John Bunyan is one of those. So I just pray that you'd be with us tonight as we study. I pray as we answer questions together that we would help each other. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this handout is a ridiculous 16 pages long. Um, and well, but some of that's just because of the whole approach I'm taking to this book. It just seemed like, how am I going to teach this? And it just seems like the, the rhythm we've fallen into here of actually reading the, the text and stopping and talking about it and reading the text some more seems to be the best way to go, especially since not everybody's read it. And so uh, it'd be best to just walk through it. And that's why it's so long. Most of it is just made up of the words of Pilgrim's Progress. So let's begin as we're going to do every week, God willing, with some review. This is the third stage that we're going to study uh, tonight. Uh, we've been through two stages so far. The stages are just an overlay uh, laid down on top of Pilgrim's Progress. They're not actually written into the text, but it's kind of like the, the journey is divided into 10 more or less equal portions, and that fits our summer schedule pretty well. So uh, let's look at the first two stages. First of all, the entire work, Pilgrim's Progress, is an allegory. It's a symbolical tale, a long kind of parable, and it's taught in, in dream form that the author, Bunyan, uh, says that he had a dream and this is what happened in the dream. So it's like a story within a story kind of thing, etc. Um, and in the dream, as the thing begins, he sees a man, who we find out later is named Christian, at least once he's converted, who is reading in the book, Bible, and he finds out that he is in the city of destruction. And he doesn't know how to escape. He doesn't know how to get out of the circumstance he has no way of knowing uh, which way to go. He's got a terrible burden on his back. He tries to explain these things to his wife and children. They don't understand. And so as he's walking through the fields and mulling over things and grieving over his own sin, but seeing no way of escape, he meets a man named Evangelist who comes and has a conversation with him. And eventually, as a result of that conversation, he's set on his pilgrimage. He's asked, do you see that uh, wicked gate over there? And he says, no, I don't see it. He said, well, do you see that distant light? And he says, I think I do. And he begins running in that direction. And uh, his wife and kids come after him for a little while to try to persuade him to come back, but he won't. And then two neighbors come with him, and eventually one of them goes back, but one of them comes with him for a little while, this one named Pliable. They go on for a little ways, and they fall into a swamp, the slough of despond. The word despond means 
depression or discouragement. And uh, the one uh, that's been with him, Pliable, is deeply offended at this and had hoped for an easy passage to that happy place that they're going. He has no conviction of sin, no heavy burden on his back, and so he's able lightly to get up out of the swamp and get back home, and we never see him again. Um, but Christian is basically uh, like he's drowning. And so a man named Help comes and lifts him up. And eventually then he is able to get to the wicked gate. He knocks on the gate. And uh, as the scripture says, knock and the door will be open to you. And so a man named Goodwill opens the door after asking him what it is he wants. He lets him in. He doesn't just let him in. He pulls him in rapidly because uh, he is told that Beelzebub's castle is right there and he shoots at people who are just about to enter the gate. So he pulls him in there and then he sets him um, on uh, the journey. Um, oh, did I skip the, uh, yeah, I skipped worldly wise man. It's okay, it's better to skip him. Uh, so uh, Christian uh, made a big mistake. I'm sorry, I was doing this from memory and I, I skipped him. Uh, so this man, worldly wise man, comes and tries to persuade him to get his, his, his burden off his back by morality, by living a civil life. Uh, but all that ends up happening is he ends up feeling like he's going to be crushed by Mount Sinai, by the law, and he can't keep it. And so Evangelist comes and rebukes him and gets him back on the trail that leads eventually then to the wicked gate as it described. Now last week we talked about uh, Interpreter's House, which he goes to next, and we saw seven different vignettes that the interpreter showed Christian to teach him important spiritual principles about the Christian life. And these are really powerful. They're like uh, illustrations in a sermon, somewhat like Jesus' parables. You know, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman mixed in a large amount of flour until it permeated the whole dough. Or the kingdom of heaven is like, like a mustard seed that grew and became so large that birds came and perched in its branches, that kind of thing, parables. Um, these things are kind of acted out. They're lived out. An interpreter uses them to teach principles. And so we looked at them last time. The first was a portrait of a spiritual guide. Uh, somebody who has uh, his mind fixed on heaven, who's cast the world behind him, who's yearning only for, uh, for the commendation of Almighty God, who has the law of God on his lips, and he is the only one, says interpreter, who is qualified or able to lead you as a spiritual guide on your pilgrimage. So he represents uh, any mentor or perhaps any pastor who could be a, a guide to pilgrims on their way. And then secondly, there's the dusty room, which... Uh, a parlor that's filled with dust and a man comes and, and tries to sweep it up. But no matter what he does, the more he sweeps, the dustier it gets. Uh, but then along comes a, a young woman who sprinkles water everywhere. And after sprinkling water, she's able to, it says, clean the room with pleasure. And this refers to the effect of the gospel on the, on the heart of a person. That before the gospel comes, all the law does is stir up sin. That's all it does. You can't actually make any genuine moral improvement. If you actually do make genuine moral improvement apart from the grace of the gospel, it's just going to lead you into the sin of pride and self-sufficiency. No matter what happens before the grace of the gospel comes, the law only multiplies sin. That's all it does. But once the law has come, uh, sorry, once the gospel has come, then actual moral reformation can occur by the law of God because the spirits at work in the person's life, the dusty room. The third is passion and patience. We saw this, and these, these are two boys sitting in chairs, and they're both told to wait until next year for their best things. But uh, uh, passion can't wait. He wants it now. And so they dump a bunch of good things in front of him. He spends them all, and then he's poverty-stricken whereas patience waits for all of his good things next. And it just shows the need that we have 
to not live for this present world, to know that everything that we see is temporary, that this world is temporary and the world to come is eternal, and that we should, we should be living with patience and waiting for all of our best things that are yet to come. The fourth image is the fire burning against the wall. All, of all of these, this is my favorite. I think it teaches us the most about the Christian life. And in this uh, little vignette, this little kind of um, uh, acted out parable, there's a uh, hearth burning uh, with fire against a, a wall. And there's a man that's there trying to douse the fire. He's pour, trying to pour water on it, put it out. But no matter what he does, the fire keeps burning and he, can't, he just can't seem to put it out. And then interpreter has him around, a Christian around the, behind the wall to show why. There's another man that's secretly introducing oil into the base of the, the, uh, uh, the fire, uh, keeping it burning. And so the interpretation is that the fire represents the work of grace in a Christian's heart. The one trying to put it out is the devil. But he can't put it out because Christ, the man behind the wall, feeds it with the oil of God's grace, feeds it with the oil of the Holy Spirit. But he's behind the wall showing that those who are tempted and going through afflictions cannot always see how God, how Christ is sustaining uh, them in the moment of trial. Very much like the... Uh, Footprints in the sand, you know, uh, I won't talk about that anyway, but you're being sustained during your hardest times and you didn't really know that it was the Lord all along. To me, this is a very important image because it shows, first of all, the security of those that are genuinely converted. There is nothing Satan can do to put out the fire. There's nothing Satan can do in a genuinely converted person to make that person stop loving and believing in Jesus. And why is that? Because God through the intercessory ministry of Jesus, our mediator, continues to sustain our faith and the work of grace in our hearts. He started it, he began the good work in us, and he will carry it on to completion. What this should do for us is, first of all, it should make us thankful to God for our salvation. It should make us mindful of the fact that our salvation is a work in progress. That if God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit stopped working on us, we would most certainly apostatize turn away from Christ and reject him immediately. And don't think you wouldn't. Don't think you could stand up against Satan for even a moment. But because God will not give you over to him, because Satan's on a leash, because he is restrained, we'll talk more about that later today, tonight, uh, there's nothing you can do to put out that fire. But that should not make you overconfident or cocky. It should just make you dependent on Jesus. And he will never... It also should teach you how you should pray for other people. Christians, I mean, who are going through trials. Pray like Jesus prayed for Simon Peter where he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. So when you hear that someone has a diagnosis of cancer or is going through significant financial trouble or lost their job, pray that their faith won't fail. And if they're genuinely Christians, what do we know about them? About their faith. It won't fail. Why? Because Jesus is going to keep praying for them and the Father's going to keep sustaining it. That's why. Not because they're good on their own but because God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit will sustain the work of grace in their hearts. Anyway, I spent the longest time on the fire burning, so well, it's very helpful. All right, the next is the palace and the warrior. This is just an image of a, um, a beautiful, kind of almost like the celestial city, a palace with radiant uh, people uh, behind the walls, but then there's all these warriors on the outside of it, and they're ready to basically chop to pieces anyone that tries to enter the castle. And so along comes a warrior and uh, he's dressed in, in his armor and he says, put my name down there. And he goes and he hacks and fights his way into the castle, whereupon he's given radiant shining garments just like the ones that are already in there. So anyway, that basically teaches it's not going to be an easy road to heaven 
You got to fight. You got to fight the world of flesh and the devil to get to heaven. And then there's the man in the iron cage, which is somewhat the mirror image of the uh, fire burning against the wall. That's the idea in that one of it's an individual who is filled with despair, bitterness of soul and grief because of his own sins. He has sinned his way, so he believes, out of God's grace. He has sinned so much that God cannot forgive him. He gave in to his lusts. He gave in to his temptations. He didn't fight them, and now he's in this cage and he can't get out. And God will never forgive him. He'll never accept him. There's nothing he can do. He's just going to end up in hell, and nothing's going to change it. And you're like, well, how in the world do you harmonize that with the fire burning against the wall? Well, what's interesting is we don't really know the reality of the situation. We just know what the man believes. We know what he thinks. And what that teaches is that if you are overconfident and presumptuous and just don't worry about watching over your soul and just do whatever you want on the internet or do whatever you want in, in life and all that, you may get to the place where you don't really know where you stand, where your assurance is shot to, to bits and you are doing nothing good for God and you frankly don't know what's waiting for you after you die. That actually can happen to individuals. So those two images, one gives you a sense of hope and confidence in Christ. The other one tells you, you better watch yourself and how you live. And both of those are biblical themes, My, the man in the cage. Then there's the dream of judgment day in which basically judgment day, described biblically, is put in dream form. But this individual who's dreaming it believes that he's going to end up in hell. And so he wakes up from his dream in terror because he's afraid that he would be left behind by the angels that are taking the elect up into heaven. All right, those are the seven images. Um, any questions? It's all by way of review. Any questions from the last couple of weeks? Comments? I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, already you had 16 pages in the outline. You spent like a third of our time on review. So what in the world? So I know I'm thinking the exact same thing, but let's move on. Tonight we're going to talk about the cross and what happens at the cross for Christian. And then he's going to have some conversations with some uh, individuals, five of them, formalists and hypocrisy, and then uh, three other individuals, sloth and I forget all their names, but anyway, they're lazy, sleepy people. And then the hill difficulty, the shady arbor where he gets some rest, the lions that are chained, but he can't tell that they're chained. And then the Palace Beautiful, where he has Christian fellowship and where it's almost like a Smithsonian museum of all kinds of artifacts of heroes of the past that he gets to study. And then he gets equipped for his battle next time against Apollyon. So that's what we're going to cover tonight. And all of that in 45 minutes. So let's dig in. All right. The first is the cross, and Christian's burden comes off at last. Here's the text. Now I saw in my dream that the highway up which Christian was to go was fenced on either side with a wall. And that wall was called salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran thus till he came at a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below in the bottom a sepulcher. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble and so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher, where it fell in, and I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome, and said with a merry heart, He hath given me rest by his sorrow, and life by his death. Then he stood still a while to look and wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked therefore and looked again even till the springs that were in his head sent the waters down his cheeks. 
That's a very powerful image, isn't it? So let me stop and let's have some discussion questions first. What does this teach you about the cross of Christ? And he's been, there's a sense of that he's been set free. All right. Um, he's been set free. I think the key to understanding this image here is what is the burden? What is the burden that he's been carrying on his shoulders all this time? It's sin or a feeling of the guilt of sin and the inevitable condemnation that will come from his sin. That's gone. Now, we know that our sin isn't gone when we come to the cross. But the feeling that our, my sin is going to sink me down into hell. Now, that's gone when you come to the cross. And so it says in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We still have sin, but our sins aren't going to defeat us. They're not going to crush us in the end. I also think about Isaiah 53, where it says, Surely he has taken up our burdens and carried our sorrows. So there's a sense that he's carried our iniquities um, on us. How does Christian react when his burden finally fell from his back? Okay, he's happy. Yes. Glad and lightsome. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you used the word lightsome in a sentence? All right. Then was Christian glad and lightsome. I remember when I was a boy, uh, I went hiking with my dad and we uh, went camping, hiking and camping. All right. So that's not the same. Like camping, which I just did with my son about a week and a half ago, we had all of our equipment in the trunk of my car. So we were not very careful about what we brought. We brought as much as we needed and far more. But when you go hiking then camping, you got to be very careful because everything you use, including your sleeping bag, your tent, all that, you're carrying. Well, I remember this. After hours of having that heavy backpack on my back, when I took it off, I felt like I was on the moon, like I was floating. You know what I'm saying? Like I had, well, I'd like lost a lot of weight. So that's what it was like for him. Now, here's my question. How can meditating on the cross of Christ help you have a greater sense of freedom from the same burden? Yeah, very good. And I think especially when we sin, when we violate our conscience. Now, as Christians, we feel that burden coming back a little bit. And it says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So meditating on the cross confessing our sin, we can have that same sense of relief that comes when we feel guilty for our sins. All right, so after that happened, now as he stood looking and weeping, behold, three shining ones came to him and saluted him with, Peace be unto thee. So the first said to him, Thy sins be forgiven thee. The second stripped him of his rags and clothed him with a change of raiment. And the third also set a mark on his forehead and gave him a roll with a seal upon it which he bade him look on as he ran, that he should give it in at the celestial gate. So they went on their way. So uh, what do these gifts represent in the Christian life? So he's come to the cross, his burden's off, rolls down in the empty tomb, never sees it again, and then he gets these wonderful experiences with these three shining ones. What do they represent? All right, the first one says... Peace be unto thee, and then thy sins be forgiven thee. So that's the first gift. The second one strips him of his nasty clothes, his rags, and puts a clean set of clothing on him. And the third one gives him a roll, tells him to look into it as often as he... Yeah, go ahead, Seth. Of course, I don't know. <laughs> I don't have the answer key at the back, but it seems like it. He's got this radiant change of uh, clothing, garments, Okay. It also would remind us of the parable of the, of the wedding uh, banquet, remember, where the, uh, the master comes in and notice somebody there not wearing wedding clothes? What happened to him? Put out where? 
into the darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So clearly in that parable, the clothing must refer to the righteousness of Christ. But I wonder if he's picking up on some of that. What about the roll, the scroll that he's supposed to look in and then give it in at the gate? Yeah, I mean, there's that seal because he's he's sealed with the forehead. And so, yeah, the the editor of the thing that I'm clipping and dropping from the Internet thinks Ephesians 1.13 were sealed with the Spirit. So that could very well be it. It could be the Spirit's testimony with us that we are children of God. That's the sealing of the Spirit. The Spirit testifies with us that we're children of God. And so that would be, many people uh, think that this is assurance of salvation. The Spirit ministering assurance of salvation, that gives you encouragement along the way that your sins are forgiven. All right, let's keep going. Christian celebrates. Then Christian gave three leaps for joy and went on singing. Thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in. Till I came hither, what a place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss? Must here the burden fall from off my back? Must here the strings that bound it to me crack? Blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, blessed rather be the man that that there was put to shame for me. That's just celebrating the, the gift of salvation through faith in Christ. All right, so here's a question for you. How can Christians have their initial joy and salvation restored to them even after they've been Christians a long time? So Christian is happy, he's singing, he's writing poetry, he's giving three leaps for joy. Um, And we see that in new converts. We see that kind of joy. But after you've been a Christian a while, it's hard to... How do you you see that joy restored? Okay, Is it important that our joy and salvation be restored? Well, that's an easy one. Of course it's important. As it says in Psalm 51, restore to me the joy of my salvation or your salvation. Why is it important that we feel joy in our salvation? What difference would that make? That's right. We're, we live in a, a very sad world, a world filled with crushed people who don't have the forgiveness that we have. And joy, uh, the joy of the Lord uh, is our strength. It gives us energy, gives us strength when we're filled with joy. Conversely, of course, the opposite would be sadness, misery, sorrow. And these things are very debilitating. Uh, Depression is very debilitating. Yeah, I mean, I think we need to remember that joy is commanded of Christians. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. So we are supposed to be joyful. And what that means is if at any moment we're not joyful in Christ, something's wrong. Something has come and interfered with us and we need to find out what it is and repent and be restored. All right, let's move on. One of the powerful Uh, aspects of of Pilgrim's Progress are the conversations that he has along the way with with characters that he meets. And again, with it being an allegory, we don't have to wonder where the people stand. We're told by their names, you know, who they are and how they act. So uh, we have five such individuals here. We'll interact with each of them, three of them, and then two. But the first is simple sloth and presumption. I saw then in my dream that he went on thus, even as he came at a bottom, it's like a valley, where he saw, a little out of the way, three men fast asleep, with fetters upon their heels, chains. The name of the one was simple, another sloth, and the third presumption. Christian then, seeing them lie in this case, went to them, if peradventure he might awake them, and cried, You are like them that sleep on the top of a mast, for the Dead Sea is under you, a gulf that has no bottom. Awake, therefore, and come away. Be willing also, and I will help you off with your irons. He also told them, If he that goeth about like a roaring lion comes by, you will certainly become a prey to his teeth. 
With that, they looked upon him and began to reply in this sort. Simple said, I see no danger. Sloth said, yet a little more sleep. And presumption said, every vat must stand upon its own bottom. What is the answer else that I should give thee? And so they lay down to sleep again, and Christian went on his way. Yet he was troubled to think that men in that danger should so little esteem the kindness of him that so freely offered to help them by both awakening of them, counseling of them, and proffering to help them off with their irons. So what do these individuals represent? What kinds of people? Simple sloth and presumption. Yeah, I mean, are they worried about their condition? No. Not at all. Uh, that's what presumption is. I presume I'm fine. I think everything's just fine. Or sloth is laziness. He's just too lazy to do anything about it. The word simple means he's like a simpleton, kind of. He's just a fool, just doesn't see things as he should. All right, so how do we see individuals like this today in the 21st century context? Yeah, oh, that's powerful. Yeah, powerful. What would Bunyan say that we should do for such people or could do for such people? Okay. Did Christian warn them? I mean, in the allegory here, did Christian, Christian warn these three individuals of their danger? He actually did. Look back. He's like, well, you're like people sleeping on top of a mast in a storm. That's not a good place to sleep. All right. It's not a, it's a dangerous place. All right. And then he mentions a lion going around seeking someone to devour. I mean, you're, you're just laying down and there's a lion loose in the streets. So, I mean, he does try to warn them. All right. But what's the problem? They don't take the warning. They're not taking any of this seriously. So this is one of the things for us in evangelism. Part of our job is to be afraid for people who are not afraid for themselves. See what I'm saying? You, you, ought, to, you ought to fear. Do you fear for that young woman's soul? Are you afraid of her spiritual condition? Yeah, you are. And, and it's a burden that we have to say, you have no fear, but you ought to. And I'm going to be afraid on your behalf. I, I want to see if I can communicate the fear to you. And they don't want that. So why, why would I want to be afraid? That's a bad thing. It's like, well, it's only, it's bad if there's no actual danger. But if there's terrible danger, fear will do you a lot of good. Like uh, uh, Amazing Grace said, it was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieve. So you should fear the judgment to come and flee. But these folks don't care at all. No, there's nothing that you can do for them. All right, so he continues. Now we're going to meet two other individuals. As he was troubled thereabout, he espied two men come tumbling over the wall on the left hand of the narrow way. And they made up a pace to him. The name of the one was Formalist, and the name of the other was Hypocrisy. So, as I said, they drew up unto him who thus entered with them into discourse. Christian, gentlemen, whence came you and whither go you? Formalist and Hypocrisy. We were born in the land of vainglory, and we are going for praise to Mount Zion. Christian, well, why came you in not at the gate, which standeth at the beginning of the way? Know you not that it is written that he that cometh in not by the door, but climbeth up by some other way is this, the same as a thief and a robber? Formalist and hypocrisy. They, uh, they said that to go to the gate for entrance was by all their countrymen counted too far about. And that, therefore, their usual way was to make a shortcut of it and to climb over the wall as they had done. Christian, but will it not be counted a trespass against the Lord of the city, whither we are bound thus to violate his revealed will? Formalist and hypocrisy. They told him that 
As for that, he needed not to trouble his head thereabout, for what they did they had custom for and could produce, if need were, testimony that would witness it for more than a thousand years. Christian. But said, Christian, will your practice stand at trial at law? A trial at law, formalist and hypocrisy. They told him, that custom, it being of so long a standing as above a thousand years, would doubtless now be admitted as a thing legal by any impartial judge. And besides, said they, if we get into the way, what, what's matter which way we get in? If we are in, we are in. Thou art but in the way, who, as we perceive, came in at the gate. And we are also in the way that came tumbling over the wall. Wherein now is thy condition better than ours? Christian, I walk by the rule of my master. You walk by the rude working of your fancies. You are counted thieves already by the Lord of the way. Therefore, I doubt you will not be found true men at the end of the way. You came in by yourselves without his direction and shall go out by yourselves without his mercy. To this they made uh, him but little answer. They only bid him look to himself. Then I saw that they went on every man in his own way without much conference one with another. All right, so who are these individuals? What do they represent? How do we understand them? Formalist and hypocrisy. Yeah, so uh, a formalist is someone who goes through the outward forms and patterns of religion, but there's no genuine heart transformation within what we would call maybe a nominal uh, individual or somebody who's just going through the rituals. Um, and then uh, a hypocrite or hypocrisy, what does that refer to? Is there any chance that there might be people like this in the Bible Belt who come tumbling in over the wall, have no genuine heart work ever done? No, they didn't come in through the gate, which is by genuine faith in Christ. They didn't come to the cross, but there they are just like you. They're here. So what's the difference, right? They're here on Sunday morning, they're here at the, all the activities, but there's no genuine walk with Christ. And uh, I think this is something that we have to always look out for. Also, we see it, um, you know, as I interact with the missionaries in the Balkans, they're dealing there with uh, the religion called Orthodoxy. So the Serbian Orthodox Church, like the Russian Orthodox or the Greek Orthodox, there is, it's just a machine, a religious machine that there's no vitality to it at all. There's actually no fellowship. The people come in, they kiss the icons, they do certain rituals and they go out. It's just a religious machine. It's uh, one of the missionaries likened it to a spiritual ATM machine where if you need, you know, 20 bucks, you come and you get your 20 bucks, you need 50, whatever you need, you come get. But there's no fellowship, there's no interaction, no preaching, no ministry of the word, there's nothing, it's just a machine. So all over the world, there's this kind of ritualism and formalism and hypocrisy still going on today. All right, let's keep going. The hill difficulty. Then I beheld then that they all went on till they came to the foot of the hill difficulty, at the bottom of which was a spring, there were also in the same place two other ways besides that which came straight from the gate. One turned to the left hand and the other to the right <clears throat> at the bottom of the hill. But the narrow way lay right up, right up the hill. And the name of the going up the hill, uh, the side of the hill is called difficulty. Christian now went to the spring and drank thereof to refresh himself. And then he began to go up the hill saying, the hill though high I covet to ascend, the difficulty will not me offend. For I perceive the way to life lies here. Come, pluck up heart, let's neither faint nor fear. Better, though difficult, the right way to go than wrong, though easy, where the end is woe. 
Now remember, Goodwill told him at the wicket gate that the way to the celestial city was as straight as a ruler could make it. So that means any deviating from that, left or right, is off the path. Now in this case, there is a path that goes to the left and there's a path that goes to the right. And they both are very convenient and that they avoid going up the steep hill. So that's what's going on there. So the other two, formalist and hypocrisy, also came to the foot of the hill. But when they saw that the hill was steep and high, and that there were two other ways to go, and supposing also that these two ways might meet again uh, with that up uh, which Christian went on the other side of the hill, therefore they were resolved to go in these ways. Now the name of one of these ways was danger, and the name of the other, destruction. So the one took the way which is called danger, which led him into a great wood, a forest, and the other took uh, directly up the way to destruction, which led in him into a wide field full of dark mountains, where he stumbled and fell and rose no more. Now, I don't know why you'd want to take a road that's entitled danger or another road that's entitled destruction. I don't know if he just didn't read the sign or whatever, but they certainly are trying to avoid the hill difficulty. So what does the hill difficulty represent in the Christian life? Trials? Can we say difficulties? You know, like <laughs> things that are hard in the Christian life. Uh, do not expect it to be easy. God doesn't mean for it to be easy. There's no doubt that God could level the way before you like a, with a big, big grater and just keep it level. He could do that, but he doesn't do that. He makes it difficult so that you will not rely on yourself, but on God and on prayer. All right, so... <clears throat> How does this expose formalist hypocrisy? And frankly, how is their behavior pretty consistent with the way they've done their entire deal? Keep in mind, why didn't they go through the wicket gate? Do you remember why? There's a reason they gave why they didn't enter there. It was too far away. It's too difficult, too far, way out of the way. Why should we do that? Besides which, we can just do it easier, just dump over the fence and we're fine, right? Do you see they're behaving consistently here? It's like, oh, this is difficult. Let's find another way. We'll get around this thing, and then we'll meet up with the same road on the other side. Yeah, I mean, the, the editors here insert Isaiah 49.10, which I didn't take the time to look up. Keep in mind, all of this... Oh, you got it. Go for it, Amy. Perfect. Keep in mind, Bunyan didn't stick Isaiah 49.10 in there. Just editors find scripture. Um, but I love it. So it's just refreshment you need for the difficulties. <clears throat> all right. So Christian climbs with great difficulty and determination. I looked then after Christian to see him go up the hill, where I perceived that he fell from running to going and from going to clamoring upon his hands and knees because of the steepness of the place. So it was a difficult climb. Now about the midway to the top of the hill was a pleasant arbor made by the Lord of the hill for the refreshing of weary travelers. Thither, therefore, Christian got, where also he sat down to rest him. Then he pulled his roll out of his bosom, and read therein to his comfort. He also now began afresh to take a review of the coat or garment that was given him as he stood by the cross. Thus pleasing himself for a while, he at last fell into a slumber and thence into a fast sleep, which detained him in that place until it was almost night. And in his sleep, his roll fell out of his hand. Now, as he was sleeping, there came one to him and awaked him, saying, Go to the ant, thou sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. And with that, Christian started up and sped him on his way and went apace till he came to the top of the hill. 
So let me just stop and ask, what does this shady arbor represent? Look what it said. It says that the pleasant arbor was halfway up the hill. See that? Halfway up. And how did it get there? Who put it there? The Lord of the hill. So that's God. God put the shady arbor there halfway up. So it's a good thing. It's a place that's put there for the refreshing of weary travelers. So it's a place of refreshment where people who are weary, halfway up hill difficulty can get renewed, restored, replenished, right? It's a good thing. So what does that represent practically in the Christian life? Summer vacation. All right, there you go. <laughs> okay. All right, so then what does sleeping in the shady arbor represent? Falling asleep there. Quitting your job and staying at your vacation condo? Is that what that represents? What do you think it represents that he fell asleep there? Is it a good thing that he fell asleep? Clearly it's not. And it's going to be clear as we go on how bad a thing it was that he stayed too long there. The purpose of the shady arbor is the same as a good night's sleep. And what's that? Rest and refreshment for what? Just so you can be rested and refreshed? No, so you can get up and do the good works God has for you to do. And so the danger here has to do with recreation, lawful pleasures, you know, restorative things that God gives us that we then use too much, overmuch, all right? And then become addicted to them and they become a diversion and you stop running the race with endurance but get distracted and end up in a difficult way. Uh, like sleep itself, how is sleep seen in the Bible? Is it seen as a blessing from God? Yes, it is, sometimes. It says that the Lord grants sleep to those that he loves in Psalm 127. Jesus said to his own disciples, come apart and rest for a while because there are so many people pressing in on them all the time. All right? So you definitely can see that. I've got some things in there about honey, but I'm just going to skip them. Let's just focus on, on sleep. But what about... Um, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him, remember? And he said, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Then he goes off by himself, Jesus does, and prays. What did Peter, James, and John do at that time? They fell asleep. Is that sleep a good thing for Peter, James, and John? Let's focus on Peter. Was it, was it a good time for Peter to be sleeping? there. We say no. Why would we say no? He told them to watch and pray so that he would not enter into or fall into temptation. Had he by any chance told Peter anything else earlier in the evening by any chance? Satan wanted to sift him like wheat. Did he tell him anything after that? Anything even more pointed that would happen that very night? He would deny him three times before the rooster crowed. So I'm just not thinking it's a good time for Peter to sleep. What do you think? And he's told, watch and pray so you don't fall into temptation. It would have been a good time for him to imitate Jesus and spend it praying. Because that would, I would say, Peter would say, at the end of his life, that was the worst night of his life. Without doubt. It was the worst thing he ever did. And he just wasn't ready and he slept. So here's the thing. Sleep is a blessing from God, but it can also, it can make you into a spiritual sluggard. So you see that in uh, Proverbs 6 as he quotes it. All right. Well, let's keep going the lions alongside the way. Now, when he was got up to the top of the hill, there came two men running to meet him amain. The name of the one was Timorous, and the name of the other was Mistrust. To whom Christian said, Sirs, what's the matter? You run the wrong way. Timorous answered that they were going to the city of Zion and got up that difficult place. But, said he, the further we go, the more danger we meet with. 
Wherefore we turned and are going back again. Yes, said Mistrust, for just before us lie a couple of lions in the way. Whether sleeping or waking, we know not. And we could not think if we came within reach, but they would presently pull us in pieces. Christian, you make me afraid, but whither shall I fly to be safe? If I go back to mine own country, that is prepared for fire and brimstone. I shall certainly perish there. If I can get to the celestial city, I am sure to be in safety there. I must venture. To go back is nothing but death. To go forward is fear of death, and life everlasting is beyond it. I will yet go forward. All right, so mistrust and timorous ran down the hill, and Christian went on his way. But thinking again of what he had heard from the men, he felt in his bosom for his role, that he might read therein and be comforted. But he felt and found it not. Then was Christian in great distress and knew not what to do, for he wanted that which used to relieve him and that which should have been his pass into the celestial city. Here, therefore, he began to be much perplexed and knew not what to do. At last he bethought himself that he had slept in the arbor that is on the side of the hill and falling down upon his knees, he asked God's forgiveness for that foolish act and then went back to look for his role. But all the way that he went back, who can sufficiently set forth the sorrow of Christian's heart? Sometimes he sighed. Sometimes he wept. Oftentimes he chided himself for being so foolish to fall asleep in that place, which was erected only for a little refreshment for his weariness. Thus, therefore, he went back, carefully looking on this side and on that, all the way as he went, if happily he might find his role that had been his comfort so many times in his journey. He went thus till he came again within sight of the arbor where he slept. He sat and slept. But that sight renewed his sorrow the more by bringing again even afresh the evil of his sleeping into his mind. Thus, therefore, he now went on bewailing his sinful sleep, saying, O wretched man that I am, that I should sleep in the daytime, that I should sleep in the midst of difficulty, that I should so indulge the flesh as to use that rest for ease to my flesh, which the Lord of the hill hath erected only for the relief of the spirits of pilgrims. How many steps have I took in vain? Thus it happened to Israel for their sin, that they were sent back again by the way of the Red Sea. And I am made to tread those steps with sorrow, which I might have trod with delight, had it not been for this sinful sleep. How far might I have been on my way by this time? I am made to tread those steps thrice over, which I needed not to have tread, trod but once. Yea, now also I am like to be benighted, for the day is almost spent. Oh, that I had not slept. So... <laughs> Why do you think Christian is beating himself up so much about this? And let me ask the second question. We 20, 21st century Christians tend to be more easygoing and accepting of weakness and sin in ourselves and others. How could we learn from Christian and Bunyan on this issue? So why is he beating himself so much? Uh, and is it appropriate? What are your thoughts? Do you think when we've sinned, when we violated our conscience, we've done wrong things, that it's, that it's a greater danger to be too little severe with ourselves or too much, much too severe with ourselves? I don't know the answer, but what do you think is more the tendency of our age not, to not do much about it? Just say, well, just confess it and move on. I want to read a scripture here that I think is relevant. 1 Corinthians 11, 29 through 32. There the Apostle Paul is talking about how the Corinthians had sinned concerning the Lord's Supper. And look what he says here. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you, listen to this, are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. 
died. Now here's the key verse. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So what do you make of verse 31? If we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. If you take it easy on yourself and God would like you to be more severe with yourself, what will he do? I mean, based on the text, he'll send judgments your way as a discipline, right? So if you don't want God to do that to you, what does the text say you should do? What should you do if you don't want God to discipline you? Do it yourself. You're like, well, what does that mean? Are you talking about self-flagellation? No, but I am talking about taking it seriously. I'm talking about James 4 says, grieve, mourn, and wail, change your laughter to mourning, enjoy to gloom. means really confess your sin, dig down and get it up by the root, look at it, work it over, say, what did I do? Why did I do that? I knew better, and yet you've done all this good in my life. You know, work on it for a while until you feel what you should feel about your sin. That's all I'm saying. I'm not talking about any physical flagellation or something like that. I'm talking about doing actual work on yourself. And if you do that, the Lord is saying, I won't need to do it to you. It's already done. So I don't need to, but if you're just taking it too lightly, I might need to up the ante a bit. I might need to make you weak and sick. All right? I might need to do some things in your life. That's what the text is saying in 1 Corinthians. I find it interesting. All right, Bill, go ahead. Exactly. But that's the whole point, is to get us to hate sin and change our ways so that we don't keep doing it. Let's move on. Christian joyfully recovers his scroll. Now by this time, he was come to the arbor again, where for a while he sat down and wept. But at last, as Christian would have it, Looking sorrowfully down under the settle, that is the, the couch, he, there he espied his roll, the which he with trembling and haste catched up and put it into his bosom. But who can tell how joyful this man was when he had gotten his roll again? For this roll was the assurance of his life and acceptance at the desired haven. Well, there you have it, right from Bunyan's lips what he thinks it is it is his assurance of salvation therefore he laid it up in his bosom gave thanks to god for directing his eye to the place where it lay and with joy and tears betook himself again to his journey but oh how nimbly <clears throat> now did he go up the rest of the hill but he still got the lions to deal with right so i saw in my dream that he made haste and went forward that if possible, he might get lodging there. Now, before he had gone far, he entered into a very narrow passage, which was about a furlong off from the porter's lodge. And looking very narrowly before him as he went, he espied two lions in the way. Now, thought he, I see the dangers that mistrust and timorous were driven back by. The lions were chained, but he saw it not. All right, so he did not see the chains. Then he was afraid and thought also himself to go back after them, for he thought nothing but death was before him. But the porter at the lodge, whose name is Watchful, perceiving that Christian made a halt as if he would go back, cried unto him, saying, Is thy strength so small? Fear not the lions, for they are chained, and are placed there for the trial of faith where it is, and for the discovery of those that had none. Keep in the midst of the path, and no hurt shall come unto thee. That's a very good inducement to stay laser straight on the path, right? You got lions on the left, a lion on the left, and a lion on the right. So then this poem, difficulty is behind, fear is before. Though he's got on the hill, the lions roar. 
A Christian man is never long at ease. When one fright's gone, another doth him seize. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? Don't expect like some long six-month stretch of nothing but ease and, and no problems at all. I mean, as soon as the one thing's done, we're on to the next one. Then I saw that he went on trembling for fear of the lions, but taking good heed to the directions of the porter, he heard them roar, but they did him no harm. Then he clapped his hands and went on till he came and stood before the gate where the porter was. So what do these chained lions represent? I think so. You know, our enemy prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but he's on a leash. So, Stephanie, what does that mean to you? He's on a leash. Yes, I have a verse for that. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But with the temptation will make the way of escape so that you can stand up under it. So when it says he will not allow or permit you to be tempted beyond what you can bear, you see the limitations of Satan the tempter. He cannot do more than what God permits. He's on a leash. All right, next and finally, the palace beautiful, conversation with discretion, charity, prudence, and piety. We'll get as far as we can. We've got about five minutes left. Then said Christian to the porter, Sir, what house is this? And may I lodge here tonight? The porter answered, This house was built by the Lord of the hill. And he built it for the relief and security of pilgrims. The porter also asked whence he was and whither he was going. Christian, I am come from the city of destruction, and I'm going to Mount Zion. But because the sun is now set, I desire, if I may, to lodge here tonight. Porter, what is your name? My name is now Christian, but my name at the first was Graceless. I came of the race of Japheth, whom God will persuade to dwell in the tents of Shem. Porter. But how doth it happen that thou come so late? The sun is set. Christian, I had been here sooner, but that wretched man that I am, I slept in the arbor that stands on the hillside. Nay, I had, notwithstanding that, been here much sooner, but that in my sleep I lost my evidence and came without it to the brow of the hill. And then feeling for it and finding it not, I was forced with sorrow of heart to go back to the place where I slept my sleep, where I found it. And now I am come. Porter, well, I will call out one of the virgins of this place who will, if she likes your talk, bring you into the rest of the family according to the rules of the house. So up comes discretion, one of the virgins of the house. Then she asked him whence he was and whither he was going. So I skipped some of the text here. So this is discretion. And he told her. She asked him also how he got into the way and he told her. Then she asked him what he had seen and met with in the way, and he told her. And at last she asked his name, and so he said, It is Christian. And I have so much the more a desire to lodge here tonight, because by what I perceive, this place was built by the Lord of the hill for the relief and security of pilgrims. So she smiled, but the water stood in her eyes. And after a little pause, she said, I will call forth two or three more of the family. So she ran to the door and, and called out prudence, piety, and charity who, after a little more discourse with him, had him into the family. And many uh, of them, meeting with them at the threshold of the house, said, Come in, thou blessed of the Lord. This house was built by the Lord of the hill on purpose to entertain such pilgrims in. Then he bowed his head and followed them into his house. So, Andy, I can't help but think this reminds me of elder interviews of new member candidates. What do you think? You know, we want, you know if we like your talk, 
we'll recommend you to the church. What do you think? And if we don't like your talk, then we won't. <laughs> so there's that kind of interview. But I love this, this kind of conversation. And so they step in the fellowship. Uh, they have fellowship in the palace. Beautiful Christian eats a meal with them, which I've skipped here. And they have a deep, meaningful conversation. And I want to tell you that if you want to have lessons on good Christian fellowship, Pilgrim's Progress will give it to you. So you're not talking about fluff, current events and weather and sports, but talking about things that really matter. Let me give you a sample. Piety. Come, good Christian, since we have been so loving to you to receive you in our house this night. Let us, if perhaps we may better ourselves thereby, talk with you of all things that have happened to you in your pilgrimage. Christian, with a very good will, and I'm glad that you are so well disposed. Piety, what moved you at first to betake yourself to a pilgrim's life? Christian, I was driven out of my native country by a dreadful sound that was in my ears, to wit that unavoidable destruction did attend me, if I abode in that place where I was. Piety, but how did it happen that you came out of your country this way? Christian, it was as God would have it. For when I was under the fears of destruction, I did not know whither to go. But by chance there came a man, even to me, as I was trembling and weeping, whose name is Evangelist. And he directed me to the wicked gate, which else I should never have found, and so set me into the way that hath led me directly to this house. Let me just stop and say, next time you have time together with some other Christians over a meal, maybe at your house, maybe at their house, why not ask each, other, each other's testimonies? How has God worked in your life? How has God brought you to saving faith? Or maybe you were brought at an early age. You grew up in a Christian family. Tell us what that was like being in that Christian family. You see, those are much better things to talk about than the things people waste their time on. All right, turn the page. I want to get to uh, uh, this last section. We'll be done. Uh, prudence. This is, I skipped some things. Now, Prudence is talking to Christian. Prudence, can you remember by what means you find your annoyances at times if they are vanquished? So things that bother you in your Christian life? Yes, said Christian. When I think of what I saw at the cross, that will do it. And when I look upon my broidered coat, that will do it. Also, when I look into the roll that I carry in my bosom, that will do it. And when my thoughts wax warm about whither I am going, that will do it. So those are four things that make him happy when he's annoyed in his life. Prudence. And what is it that makes you so desirous to go to Mount Zion? Christian. Why? There I hope to see him alive that did hang dead on the cross. Isn't that powerful? There I hope to see him alive that did hang dead on the cross, Jesus. And there I hope to be rid of all those things that to this day are in me an annoyance to me, namely indwelling sin. There, they say, there is no death, and there I shall dwell with such company as I like best. For, to tell you the truth, I love him, because I was eased by him of my burden, and I'm weary of my inward sickness, indwelling sin. I would fain be where I shall die no more, and with the company that shall continually cry, Holy, Holy, Holy. Then said Charity to Christian, Have you a family? Are you a married man? Christian, I have a wife and four small children. Charity, and why did you not bring them along with you? Boy, that's got to be a painful question for him, right? Why did you not bring them along with you? Then Christian wept and said, Oh, how willingly would I have done it, but they were all of them utterly averse to my going on pilgrimage. Charity. But you should have talked to them. 
and have endeavored to show them the danger of being left behind. So I did, said Christian, and told them also of what God had shown me, of the destruction of our city. But I seemed to them as one that mocked, and they believed me not. Charity, and did you pray to God that he would bless your counsel to them? Yes, said Christian, that with much affection, for you must think that my wife and poor children were very dear to me. Charity, but did you tell them of your own sorrow and fear of destruction? For I suppose that destruction was visible enough to you. Yes, said Christian, over and over and over. They might also see in my fears and my countenance and my tears and also in my trembling under the apprehension of the judgment that did hang over our heads, but all was not sufficient to prevail with them to come with me. Charity. But what could they say for themselves why they came not? Christian. Why? My wife was afraid of losing this world and my children were given to the foolish delights of youth. So what by one thing and what by another, they left me to wander in this manner alone. But did you not, said Charity, with your vain life, damp all that by words used by way of persuasion to bring them away with you? Wow. Christian, indeed, I cannot commend my life, for I am conscious to myself of many failings therein. I know also that a man by his conversation may soon overthrow what by argument or persuasion he doth labor to fasten upon others for their good. Yet this I can say, I was very wary of giving them occasion by any unseemly action to make them averse to going on pilgrimage. Yea, for this very thing they would tell me I was too precise, that I denied myself of things for their sakes in which they saw no evil. Nay, I think I may say that if what they saw in me did hinder them, it was my great tenderness in sinning against God or of doing any wrong to my neighbor. Charity. Indeed, Cain hated his brother because his own works were evil and his brothers were righteous. And if thy wife and children have been offended with thee for this, they thereby show themselves to be implacable to good, and thou hast delivered thy soul from their blood. I've always been amazed by this, at how much she grills him, you know. I mean, we would hardly ask one question. She asked like five of them. And you have to imagine, I've said this before, but that Christ's examination of us on Judgment Day will not be less than this, but more. And so we should... I think, have this kind of fellowship with each other, hold each other accountable, ask each other these kinds of questions. All right, we're out of time, so we'll pick this up, God willing, next time. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.